welcome to On Geopolitics, a podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at Cambridge, with me, Suzanne Rain, and Professor Ali Ansari. Last week, I did a lot of talking about Russia's border with Norway, so it's Ali's turn this week. We've decided we're going to give an update on the situation in Iran, Iran's place in the world, and Iran's relationship with Russia. So I'm going to ask all the questions, and Ali, who has hopefully, in some... And I'm going to try and answer them. ...on this subject, <laughs> is going to try and answer. We talked last time, a little while ago now, Ali, broadly about Iran, but in particular about the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, yeah. which was being negotiated in Vienna last year and has been kind of stuttering on, and now appears to have kind of come to this abrupt... Impasse. Stale, impasse. So I'm going to ask again, because I asked this last time and I liked it, What's the state of play with the JCPOA? Well, well, that's oh, and it rhymes as well. No, I mean, I, I, um, I, I think it's effectively comatose, and a number of people have said that. But it, it's comatose with people wondering whether they should just remove the uh, life support system altogether because it, we're not quite sure whether uh, either side, in this case the United States or Iran, have decided to make the decisions that are necessary to, to move things forward. So we're we're at the state of play now, where the Europeans, by which I really mean the the European Union in terms of Joseph Borrell and the External Action Service, have organised for negotiations to move from Vienna to Doha, where the uh, Americans. And the Iranians have bilateral talks mediated by the Europeans in which, uh, sadly, once again, the Americans, the Iranians will not be in the same hotel, but will be uh, shuttled across with the Europeans going from one hotel to another. I mean, it is quite bizarre in which at least at the very least one can give the semblance there is life still left in this in this negotiation. But as a number of us predicted, sadly, you know, what happened was uh, basically a restatement of old positions. In fact, the Americans complained that the, the Iranians had asked for more things outside what the JCPOA offered. Just to get back, sorry, Ali, I'm interrupting you. So these were the, sure. talks, in, these were the talks in Vienna. Yes, which was the P5 plus one. That's right. So Britain, China, France, Russia, the United States and Germany talking to Iran. Yes. And they about... basically stalled in March. And, and they'd stalled March. in March um, for two reasons. Um, I think the explicit one being the Russians had basically uh, put in some extra demand, uh, which weren't going to work. And a lot of even some Iranians privately thought that the, the Russians had basically put a spanner in the work. But then that was redefined in a way to take the blame away from the Russians and to say that essentially the problem was that the uh, Americans were being quite stubborn about lifting the uh, foreign terrorist organization designation from the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Iranians wanted that lifted. And that seems to have been really a somewhat late gambit in some ways. I, I don't think it was actually essential. It wasn't central to the whole process. In fact, everything else had been agreed. But this has now become a you know a red line for the Iranians. So that whole process came to a stuttering halt. Obviously, we've had the war in Ukraine. The Russians are no longer really welcome in the room. And so uh, the Europeans, the European Union, in a sense, desperate to keep things alive, have now shifted this discussion yes to Doha, where it's become bilateral. I mean, the Europeans are not there. The Germans, the French and the British are not there. Neither are the Chinese, for that matter, or the Russians. And interesting, I mean, I suppose this is the interesting thing that came out of the um, negotiations was that the next day, the Iranian negotiator, Bahari Kani, uh, flew off to Moscow to give a report, which uh, even surprised some Iranians, it has to be said. They said the, the negotiators returned home 
except our one went to Moscow. So uh, people are saying <laughs> he was off to report. And again, it's it's a very telling uh, indication of what the state of play is in that sense, in terms of also the relationship between Russia and Iran. So what's basically happened is that they've all worked out that now that Russia's invaded Ukraine, mm. the P5 plus one doesn't really function as a group. But the Well, it's difficult. Yes, it's difficult it, because it's of what's going impossible. on. Yeah, I mean, it is um, difficult. And therefore, the only way for any kind of conversation to keep going is if it's between America and Iran and the EU has some sort of mediatory role because somehow... That... I mean, the, the core of the issue is, is really between, has been between the United States and Iran. I mean, that, that is the core of the issue. What happened was with the invasion of Ukraine is that the, the Russians added layers to this negotiation because, of course, the Russians became sanctioned. And because the Russians were sanctioned, it suddenly occurred to them that they can't gain any benefit from sanctions being lifted off Iran. So the idea was, ultimately, or previously, was that the sanctions would be lifted on, off Iran, there would be a restoration of trade, and the, and the Russians would make great commercial advantage out of this. Now they're suddenly deprived of this. They, they basically didn't want that to happen. And there's an added element, of course, where people are saying that the Russians have been deliberately quite obstructive because they don't want the Iranians to occupy the space vacated by them in the sale of oil. Now, I don't know how true that is, but certainly on social media and other places and discussions in Iran, there is this sort of view that the Russians have deliberately sabotaged it because they don't want the Iranians to occupy the space vacated by the Russians. And Burrell made some play on this, by the way. He sort of said, oh, of course, you know, well, JCPA will be agreed and the Iranians can return to the oil market. It will alleviate some of the stress on oil prices, so on and so forth. But of course, that it didn't really reflect the reality of what's going on both in Iran or in the United States, with also the practicalities of doing that in short order. Ali, now I've got two questions. Sure. And what you're talking about is Russia thwarting negotiations yes. in its own interests. But that description that you've given isn't clearly, i.e. not clearly enough, in Iran's interest. Because what you're saying is Russia doesn't want them to do a deal because that will benefit Iran. Yes. So, well, this, so this is the, the I mean, it's an enormous paradox. So is this then about Iran's position? And, and presumably it is. And we're going to talk a little bit about Raisi, who's been in power now yeah. for a year. And clearly things aren't going as smoothly as he would have liked on that front. As he, I, he, came, he came to power promising to lift sanctions, boost employment, cut, stamp out corruption... Yeah, well, they all do, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they all do. It's a, it's like a politi so, politician's wish list, isn't it? I mean, yeah. But so, so, so how does his position, and I think I understand this as being a weaker position one year on because he hasn't delivered all the things he said he yeah. was going to do. How does that play into what Iran is hoping to get out of the negotiations with the Americans or not? Well, I don't. I mean, this is the this is the paradox. So if you were to take any rational assessment of what is in Iran's national interests, it would seem a no brainer really to say, ah, you know, we have a gap in the market here, which Iran could fill. Now, if you were to listen to the comments that former Foreign Minister Zarif said, for instance, former Foreign Minister Zarif in leaked comments, I said audio comments, he was he was doing a sort of an oral history, and it obviously wasn't meant to come out, basically said that the Russians had no interest in Iran re-entering the oil and gas market, had no interest in Iran basically securing a share of that market for themselves, and had always tried to block it, had always done work to sabotage. Now, of course, the Russians would deny that and, and, and say that's clearly not true and so on and so forth. But 
there is certainly a sense in Iran among a certain part of the bureaucracy, the Foreign Affairs Ministry of Foreign Affairs and others, that the Russians have not been helpful. Where, where the, the, the ties that bind actually really lie at a different level, and, and that's really to do with a sort of a military, a mafia military sort of complex, if I can call it that, between the Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Supreme Leader's sort of office, which effectively acts as a court, it's almost like a court, a modern court, and the Russians. So the Russians maintain that sort of uh, relationship. And there is a fairly tight commercial relationship there. Now, it's not in Iran's interests, but it seems to be in the IRGC's interests. So that's one thing. And then, of course, both sides seem to share, as Putin has outlined, and uh, so has Lavrov, actually, they seem to share a shared vision of what the world will look like in several years' time. And they both believe, and they're very convinced by it, that the West is in decline, the future belongs to them, they will reorder the international order, along with China, probably, and that really they just need to sit it out and wait for it, and obviously all these bounteous goodies will come to them in due course. It is predicated on that, and therefore the Iranians have, certainly from that sort of deep state look, that IRGC look, have doubled down on their relationship with Russia, even though, as you quite rightly say, and in the eyes of many people, you know, in Iran itself, uh, what you know Iran has to sacrifice in order to pursue this is actually things that we would consider to be in its own national, you know, economic interest. Okay, so we've got the how? What did you call it? The military mafia complex. Yeah, yeah. And then, which, of course, there's Raisi, which we can. Yes, and then can I just ask you about? building a nuclear bomb question. Yeah. Because what we always used Not to say... Not that I'm an authority on this, by the way, Suzanne. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. But, but it always used to be this amount... They would they would say, we need to make sure that something called breakout time is, is over a certain amount of time. It's got to be. It's got to be that it's going to take Iran a year to build a nuclear bomb with what they've got. And as I understand it, the problem has been that since Trump pulled America out of the JCPOA, the Iranians have been enriching uranium at huge pace and now have significant quantities. And I think the Israelis are saying it would take them basically no time at all, should they decide to do it, to move towards construction of a nuclear bomb such that they would, I mean, whether they'd be able to make it work or not, I don't know. But basically, That's they've the reached issue. the point where talking about breakout time is irrelevant because yeah. they could do it tomorrow if they wanted to. Is that where we are? And given what we've all now learned about the war in Ukraine, which is essentially any country that wants to be able to protect itself from invasion has to have nuclear weapons. Um, and you've had this very widely rippling argument that says this is the key thing against disarmament. Why on earth would we disarm? So given all of that, what do you think? There's obviously an incentive for the Iranians to just carry on enriching the uranium and building the bombs, isn't there? I mean, there is on that level. Yes, there is an incentive. And of course, some of them have taken that lesson from the Ukraine war. Not not helped, it has to be said, by the Ukrainian ambassador to London, who actually made this argument himself. He said, you want to protect yourself, don't give up your nuclear weapons. And of course, some of them will do that. I, th- I think the issue here is the technical expertise required, not only just to build the bomb, but to have a means of delivering it. And if we set a dirty bomb aside for the time being, which of course also is an issue, but the fact is that I think, it, you know, there, there is an interest of certain groups, including the Israelis and others, you know, I mean, even those securing an agreement to sort of say that Iran's breakout time is so short now that we must urgently move on certain things. I think it's also a case, and some other people have argued that, of course, 
yes, that's a very crude way of assessing Iran's breakout time. But of course, it would need to test things. It would need to see that the thing worked. And of course, the minute they went into that sort of stage, you know, we would know about it. I mean, we would be very aware of it. And the question is, is whether the Iranians want to take that risk. You know, for them, and this is a delicate, I mean, this is, a, I suppose, an interesting argument to look at it. For the Iranians, I've always felt the nuclear program has two values. One is that they, I think they've always seen it as something of enormous economic benefit to them. They wanted a nuclear industry. They talk about, you know, exporting enriched uranium. I mean, all sorts of nonsensical things, to be honest. But that's the way that they have viewed it. They viewed it as a sort of a, a means of economic sovereignty. But the other thing I think they found is that it's very good for leverage, gets all of us in the West very hot under the collar, and they can extract things, a bit like this hostage policy that they have. You know, they, they abduct people. The trouble is, is that it's the threat of doing that that gives them leverage. If they actually take the next step and build a bomb, for the sake of argument, um, they've sort of lost that leverage. I mean, it's not... So I've always had a certain amount of uh, scepticism, if you will, about, you know, what their agenda is. I don't think it's necessarily something that we can be too sanguine about, obviously, but it's something that I think is probably warrants a little bit more investigation as to how long it would take them to do, whether they would do it, but also whether when they talk about a two-week breakout time, for instance, what does that mean in practice? I, I don't think it means that they're suddenly going to be nuclear armed in a scale that you know, nobody in the West is going to be able to respond, or certainly the Israelis. But, you know, as you, as I think, as you surmise, it's not the best situation to be in. So it's not something that we should be complacent about by any stretch of the imagination. But That's I, interesting, because think... I'm thinking, would I rather have the leverage which was me threatening to do something, or would I rather just do it? Yeah. Uh, if, sorry. <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, <laughs> that's the point. I mean, I think leverage, if you're thinking about it, yeah. I mean, the point is, is I think that the threat for them, you know, the fact that they continue on these negotiations, the fact that they like to negotiate, the fact that for them, it's important to be seen as part of this very important club. And if, for the sake of argument, the West was to ignore them, as in a way is what's happened, you see, after the war in Ukraine, they've suddenly gone down the scale of priorities somewhat, and they're no longer as important as they thought they were. And that that itself is causing them a certain number of problems. And you have got reports, you know, on Reuters from American officials just saying prospects for a deal after Doha are worse than they were before Doha, and they will be getting worse by the day. So there's no well, they're bound to. No, they're bound to. But they're bound to because the Iranians have taken so long. I mean, if they'd signed this agreement last year, when Raisi came in, I mean, let's go to Raisi. When Raisi came in, he dithered. I mean, he dithered in a way that in some ways is is understandable. He said, as a new administration, we need to come in and master the brief. But they took a long time to master the brief and get going. But they were trying to echo the Americans. They said, well, when Biden came in, it took him an awful long time and blah, blah. And so we're going to take a long time too. A lot of the basic format of the agreement was ready in August, but they decided to delay. They spent the better part to the end of the calendar year just going over old ground and, and gibbering on. In January, they finally got to the stage, of course, of uh, really overcoming some of these obstacles. But then they did it again. And people said, you know, this problem on Ukraine, Russia is going to be quite serious. You ought to really get this agreed now before the geopolitical situation changes. And they took the fateful decision of saying, no, this will strengthen our hand, you see, because Russia's invasion of Ukraine will show how weak the West is, we a monumental miscalculation, and now we're stuck. And so the the interesting thing is the the agreement that we have now on the table is basically the same agreement we had last August, but the geopolitical situation has changed. And because it's changed and Biden has no political capital to spend on Iran, he's just not interested. I mean, it's not worth him doing it. 
So is that good for Raisi or bad for Raisi? I think it's terrible for Raisi in a way. I mean, he, 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 but I mean, at the end of the day, also, it's not really Raisi. You said that, you know, he'd come into power last year. I think he'd come into office last year. I don't think he has a huge amount of power. He's basically a technocrat. And, uh, you know, he comes up with all the flannel that all these politicians do anyway. You know, we're going to cut corruption and all this sort of thing and never do it. Even the latest polls, even if you accept polls in Iran, are so low. I mean, his standing is so low that people just don't believe he can deliver. And, and that's um, interesting, Ali, because last time we were talking about this, mm. you and I, I think it was I was I was musing in a way just to get you to tell me I'm wrong again. But wasn't the talk about him being lined up as possible Leader. candidate? Yes. Yeah, and I said no. Yes. So you still think no, and even more. <laughs> no, I said, no. I mean, I, at the time, I as I, and I've said this before. I mean, I think that the person being lined up to be the successor to Khamenei is his son. I think I think uh, uh, Raisi is a stalking horse in that sense. And for me, this has basically just proved it. I mean, basically, he's been brought there as someone that we can all talk about. But actually, he's a disaster. And I mean, I I had said last year that he's a bit. I mean, he, he can't read an auto cue very well. So he's not. He basically does as he's told. He's not a great charismatic. He's not. He's not an orator. So it, it's uh, you know what's very interesting is that you know successive people come in. I mean we see this and it's not unique to Iran, of course. And they all think they can do things better. I think the problem with Raisi is that he's so bad that people hadn't really quite understood how bad he was in terms of being able to manage basically manage government and all the difficulties that are entailed in that. But, you know, the power is not with him anyway. I mean, the power resides really deeper with, with the court, and, uh, I, and and that's the Supreme Leader's house. But it, it doesn't look good for him, I don't think. I mean, he, he just does his, he does what he's told. And it's the economics, which is really what drives It's the economics, the it's the politics. They're now tying up, they're trying to be stricter on even social strictures. They're, they're now trying to reinstate a harsher view of uh, the veil, for instance, is now being reimposed again. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are going on. Um, along with this sort of doubling down with the relationship with Russia, which simply isn't popular among Iranians. I mean, Iranians don't like the Russians really any more than they like it, but they always see the Russians as the sort of bully boys of the region. And there was a very interesting interview done recently by the the daughter of one of the former presidents of Iran, Rafsanjani, Fazer uh, Hashimi. And she, of course, she's been arrested as a result of this. So uh, it's not like this free speech here. But she said that, you know, we always used to be opposed to Israel because we saw Israel as an occupying power who oppressed and shot Palestinians, the natives of that land. But now we're supporting uh, Russia. And what are the Russians doing? They're occupying someone else's land and shooting the inhabitants. He said, so on what basis can we be opposed to Israel? He said, she said, as far as I'm concerned, we should stop being such hypocrites. Now, of course, it's it's something that I think reflects wider views in Iran, that this notion that somehow the Islamic Revolution and the Islamic Republic was some sort of moral force for good in the world, even the most diehard revolutionaries are now saying this is a joke, you know, and that what, what the Russians have done have exposed this huge hypocrisy. So this is fascinating, Ali, and this is the cue for me to ask you why Russia hasn't been regarded, I, I mean, I suppose there's a simple yeah. answer to this, which is that your enemy's enemy is your friend. So Russia and Iran are both anti the US. So that's the natural alliance. But I would like you now to explain historically why it is that Britain always gets it in the neck from Iran for our past interference in their territory. And Russia seems to have got away with it, or at least is somehow not vilified in the way that Britain is. 
Well, part of it is, is as, as you've said, I think it's just geopolitical reality that following the fall of the Soviet Union, first of all, Russia no longer had a border with Iran. It no longer was seen as a direct threat in that sense. But they also shared increasingly a very, very strong anti-Western bias. So there was a sort of a, there was a coincidence of interest there. What I suppose is more interesting is the fact that, you know, historically speaking, even when they did share a sort of border, I mean, the fact is that the Russians, or neither in their imperial or Soviet guise, have probably done more harm to Iranian sovereignty than the Americans or the British could ever do. And yet somehow they're not vilified, as you quite rightly say, in quite the same way as the British are. The British are seen particularly, and it's very interesting if you look at Russian rhetoric, by the way, at the moment, who are they targeting? It's the British, not the Americans, it's the British. So, you know, somehow, obviously, the British have this extraordinary Machiavellian cunning, which I'm sure... If only we actually did. I know. (laughs) I'm sure people in this country would be amazed. I mean, absolutely amazed at how efficient, you know, the British government is. I mean, it's astonishing. And I do say to people, I say, you know, you ought to go and visit Iran and stuff. You'll be mightily impressed by how efficient the British government is. But in any case, why is this? I think Part of it, as you say, uh, just to recap, is that notion of, of geopolitical realities. I think the other thing is, is basically because many of the sort of histories written, the more popular histories written in Iran in the 20th century came from the left. And because they came from the left, they had an inherent sympathy with the Soviet Union in that sense. It sort of seemed to be the right side of history. Whereas the Britain and the United States, Britain in particular, was seen as in that hub of capitalism and imperialism. Um, I mean, it's amazing for me that the Russians have never been described as imperialist, whereas in actual fact, for much of the 19th century and I would say also in the Soviet Union, you know, they were the quintessential imperialists, I mean, in, in terms of what they were doing. And of course, you know, if you look at historically speaking, you know, in the 19th century, the Russians were by far the most powerful country as far as Iran was concerned. They stripped the country of territories in the Caucasus. They tried to seize Iran and Azerbaijan after the Second World War. The relationships were extremely tense. One development, which I always like to remind my American colleagues about, is that the first embassy to be ransacked by the Iranians was the Russian embassy in 1829. And not only did they ransack it, but they killed everyone in it. I mean, it was a major disaster, a political and diplomatic fiasco. But interestingly, in the. Sorry? In Tehran. Yes. So it was. So basically. Just a quick recap for our listeners here. So basically, there's two uh, wars with Russia at the early part of the 19th century. The, the second one ends in 1828. It results in this treaty called the Treaty of Turkmenchai. And the Iranians always talk about the Treaty of Turkmenchai. It's a great moment of deep humiliation for them. Not only did it basically confirm the decline of Iran as a great power, remove the Caucasus, Caucasian territories, but it gave the Russians certain extraterritorial rights in Iran. And it also allowed them the establishment of this very lavish embassy, same embassy as you get now. And uh, what the, the then ambassador was a literary gentleman, actually. He was a, an author, Rabayadov, who basically came and he was, he, was, he was rather arrogant in his dealing with the Persians. I mean, he was a bit pompous about it. One of the things was about the repatriation of all Russian prisoners of war, even those who didn't want to get repatriated by them. I mean, this is the interesting. Yeah. So even those who'd settled in there and married, you know, Iranian wives and whatever they were, but the Russians said, no, no, they were going to come back. This whole thing became quite a scandal, particularly when some of the women folk were sort of taken out and said, you must all return back to, you know, Russia. And of course, some more voluble clerics declared, you know, this was a, a sacrilegious and the embassy was ransacked and everyone was murdered. Uh, the Iranians sent an absolutely groveling embassy, obviously, to St. Petersburg because they were terrified that, you know, the, what the consequences might be. And here's the fascinating thing. The Tsar 
wasn't interested. He thought Grabaitov was a bit of a pain, actually. So he was quite happy with the whole. And, you know, he took the apology in good stead. He was more interested in Poland or Eastern Europe at the time. And so basically, because it had occurred in 1829 and we don't have any mass media and there's no sort of public opinion or whatever, uh, the Russians basically brushed it all off. Certainly the, the Tsar basically brushed it all off. He, he took the apology in good faith. And, and the Iranians, in some ways, the Iranian state was was able to effectively not get away with it, but certainly not be punished any further. So but the border, it, Ali, but the border stayed where Yes, where they the didn't Russians take more. But they, you see, the, the Treaty of Turkmen Chai uh, resulted in a huge reparations. The border was basically Armenia, Georgia, what is now Azerbaijan, were basically permanently ceded to the Russian Empire. But then, you know, the Russians were very active in penetrating, basically influencing Iran for much, much of the 19th century. And while the British were always seen as as interfering, which, of course, they did at times. But the fact is the British were always on the strategic defensive as far as the Russians were concerned. I mean, for the British, the defense of India was paramount. They just simply didn't want Iran to become a Russian colony, effectively, or a, a vassal state. It's not great result for the Iranians, I have to say, because um, very often the British didn't probably didn't do enough, really, to keep the Russians out. But the fact is, it's in the popular imagination in Iran, the Russians are viewed with deep suspicion deep, deep suspicion. I remember, and I'll tell you this little anecdote. After the Second World War, Stalin had apparently sent a message to the Armenian Iranian, Iranian Armenians, those who lived, you know, Armenians who lived in Iran. And he said, you should all come back, come back and rebuild your country. And a number of Armenians said, well, you know, we should uh, wonder whether we should take this up. I mean, should we trust Stalin at his word? Should we go back to Armenia or not? And a couple of them said, well, we will go. Let's go. Let's be the vanguard. Two of us will go back and see what see what the situation is. So we'll go back and we'll send a picture. And if we're standing up, it's OK. Come. If we're sitting on chairs, don't. Don't come. It's terrible. And when, when the pictures came back, they were all lying on their backs on the floor. <laughs> don't come. You know, so anyway, you know, that sort of image of Russia as this highly oppressive, dictatorial regime, while it had a certain amount of sort of traction with some members of the elite who sort of worked with the Russians, the fact is in a popular sense, because the Russians were opposed to any form of democratic or constitutional development in Iran, they became deeply unpopular. So it's it's very striking. I mean, what you're seeing now is really, I think, an anomaly for certainly the modern period. Are certainly an anomaly that that a state should double down so closely with the Russians, given the fact that for many, many Iranians, including officials, by the way, I'm not just saying, you know, I'm not just saying in the street, but many officials have a deep distrust for that country and see the country as really the source of many of the evils in Iran. Um, it's very, it's a, it's an interesting gamble, I think, that the regime has taken. So I'm going to bring you on to that, Ali, yeah. because, and it's interesting, actually, because we talk about how we all perceive each other. I yeah. think I'm very aware that the Iranians perceive the UK as these arch evil villain characters. You're saying they, they think the same way about Russia. But of course, we see Iran as being the master strategist, the, yes. the chess yes, player who can that. outwit everyone. And, and you wonder then, what's their master strategy here? Because it does seem that, that what they're all doing is, is basically quite instinctive, which is, well, now we've all been sanctioned. We don't really like the world order as it currently is. We're fed up of being told what to do by Britain and the US and the EU and the United Nations. So let's come up with our own world order. And 
that appears to be the thing that's building. So I wanted to ask you a specific question, which I don't really know the answer or not, but <laughs> I've been seeing quite a few things online about Russian, you know, Russia trying to export grain to mm. Syria and trade links that Russia is building with like-minded countries. And I wanted to ask you, so for me, again, you need the map, but basically yeah. there's a line that you can draw, which is the north-south transport corridor which apparently Russia and Iran are talking about which is going to take Russian goods by rail due south really to Astrakhan and then across the Caspian Sea by freighter to Bandar Anzali Um, and then over over Iran by truck to Bandar Abbas and then onward to to India or to China or, or wherever by sea and so that's the proposed new route for the like-minded. So just to remind section. me, so you're saying basically they would to go from where would it be from? Well, St. Petersburg. So St. Petersburg down, and then but then then go across the Caspian Sea to Bandar Anzali, and then by yes. truck down to Bandar Abbas. Yes, and then and then load onto boats again. This is this um, is such a nonsensical route. I mean, I I I. I you but know, it's I, direct. If you draw a line, it, you can actually just draw. Yeah, but there the are line. two. There are rather two la- rather large mountain ranges. I mean, it's uh, the the original idea, as I understand it, was to have a sort of a rail link that would have gone through, you know, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, through eastern Iran, uh, down to Bandar Abbas, straight down. I mean, to go across the Caspian to Bandar Anzali and then down through that way is an incredibly laborious process, and. You know, it really need for it to be meaningful. It really needs to be either some sort of super highway, or it needs to be a you know a, a railway. And at the moment, as I understand, first of all, let me just be clear: these sort of discussions have been going on for decades. I mean, they've been going on for decades, and nothing's actually happened. So I wouldn't hold your breath. It's a nice idea, but I can't see it happening. The other thing is when they were talking about the Belt and Road Initiative and actually connecting Iran vis-a-vis a sort of a, a railway from China all the way, then it would go up through to St. Petersburg. Uh, through the Caucasus. The fact is, disputes along the way have ensured that actually parts of the line haven't been built, even though people are still away. And there are some real oddities there. But the other thing, which is really quite extraordinary, is this is a single railway line. It's not even a dual track. I mean, so basically, if a train's going one way, I mean, that's it, basically. I mean, it, the, and, and I remember talking to some Iranians about this. I said, you know, why are you just building a... And they, you know, it... It seemed to me, really discussing it with them, that this was more a good idea rather than something that was seriously being invested in as a sort of a, a means of it. It was, it was really a talking point. Because I think in theory, of course, what you say is absolutely right. I mean, in theory, it would be a fantastic okay, Eurasian network, in a sense, uh, an economic link. But it, it is remarkable to me how, how little they've progressed this. According to whatever I was reading, some maritime yeah. newspaper, they are going to try a test shipment of um, two containers of Russian plywood from St. Brilliant. Petersburg that will, that heading will. to Astrakhan and then further down. And that's, they think the overall voyage is going to take 25 days. So still quite... Um, I mean, those two, yeah, that would be, uh, yes, well... Let's, so we'll see where they go. Let's um, see where that happens. And plywood. then this broader question about grains and harvests and how they might be distributed now that the EU have sanctioned and closed Russian ports. And here, Mohammad Reza Mortazavi, who's head of Iran's Food Industries Associations, mm. has said that Iran is discussing the transit of grains from Russia to the Persian Gulf and other countries. So, so the question is, can 
Iran help Russia with this problem? It can, but I don't think it will, if I can put it that way. Okay. Yeah, and even if it, I mean, you know, there are huge opportunities here, I think, for the Iranians to play a very, very interesting role. But if history is anything to go by, again, as I said, I wouldn't hold your breath. And the thing is, Iranian officials are in the habit of talking a lot. I mean, of saying we're discussing this, we're doing this, we've got great plans, you know, but none of them ever bear any fruit. So okay. I, I, I wouldn't, I, I honestly, I'm sorry to pour bear any fruit water on is this. good because that's exactly what he said it is going to do. He says really? that Iran, Russia and Kazakhstan could barter wheat and grains with other products such as vegetables, fruits and dairy. But this is the thing. If you notice, he says could See that? <laughs> There's always a conditionality. We could, we are discussing, we might. I, I always remember an Iranian tourist minister saying Iran could have an international tourist industry of worth $20 billion a year. Yes, Iran could, but it would have to change certain aspects of its domestic politics before Western tourists set into Iran on the scale that they think they would. I mean, they simply wouldn't. So, I mean, there's all sorts of things about that. Again, you know, I mean, I, I'm open to persuasion. I mean, I, if, if you see anything, Suzanne, I mean, if you see these things developing, if you see that shipment of plywood going through, then uh, we can uh, we can revise our assessments. But I, I can't see it happening. Sadly. Great, Ali. No, that's really helpful and really clear. And my role is simply to ask the ridiculous questions no, to enable you to shine with your no. So now we're going to draw to a close by looking a little bit into the future and sure. saying, so what you've described is a relationship which is pragmatic, but not based on a lot of trust. And actually, two countries with their own problems, which means that a lot of the things they might say they might do might actually never happen. What do you think is going to happen next, I suppose, in respect of the Iran-Russia relationship, but actually just in respect of Iran as well? Because none of this looks particularly good, does it? Well, I think, I mean, I think the Iranians will sort of muddle along. They're probably selling enough oil to the Chinese at the moment to keep themselves afloat. Their view is, I mean, a lot will depend what happens in Ukraine. I mean, their view is the, the Russians will win. You know, let's be honest about it. We, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. I know you know, obviously the Russians are doing as, as well as they thought they might be doing, but I don't think they're losing at the moment. And the question is, is whether, you know, who loses interest first? It's a classic Iranian strategy, of course. They're going to say, we'll wait it out. The West will lose interest. Ukraine will be dumped and it will show that, you know, the Russians are, are still in the driving seats. And so I think, you know, we'll have to wait and see what happens on that broader front. But as far as I'm concerned, I mean, even if for the sake of argument, we get to an agreement and on the JCPA tomorrow, the next day, whatever, next week, the fact is we've got the US midterms coming up in November. That's unlikely to be very good for Biden. Then basically the sunset clauses are going to be kicking in anyway. I mean, that's part of the the silliness, I think, of the current negotiations was to get obviously things back on an even keel. But the longer you leave it, the less attractive that even keel becomes because obviously the sunset clauses are going to kick in. So basically what would happen is you'd have to then get to the next stage, you know, you'd have to negotiate again for the longer and stronger, which is what, of course, the Americans wanted in the first place, which the Iranians refused. So whether there's the political will left in the United States um, and, in the, and, and in the European countries, to be honest, to engage in yet more discussions with the Iranians is a matter of debate. I think if the Iranians came over with some serious proposals, uh, and this would reflect maybe the difficulties they might find in their economic situation, in their political situation, then I think, I, I don't think anyone is going to be opposed to talks. But I think the the barrier, in a sense, 
that sort of to get any enthusiasm back in the US and, and European negotiating teams. I think the barrier is much higher now. I mean, people will say, well, we need to see some concrete results or something going on. So Iran so, would have to come and say, we've decided we do want to have these negotiations. Yes, yes. And we've decided that, you know, we will make the following concessions, but this is what we want. But we went, I mean, what I understood from the Doha round was the Iranians came in with all sorts of other demands, but with no new concessions. So, I mean, it just wasn't going to work. And until they're serious about that, I can't see anyone in the West wanting to sort of get out of bed, really, to go and sit in a room with the Iranians for eight hours or 10 hours just to get back to square one again. It seems to me that a likely next phase is the drawing closer of Iran, China and Russia. And yeah. uh, so I think Iran is now part of the Shanghai Corporation Organization. As an observer, yeah. So these sort of things, the more the West relies on sanctions to solve problems, the greater the number of people in the sanctioned club. Yeah. There is an, there's a risk together. of an unintended yeah, there's a risk of an unintended consequence yeah. here, which is which is that they think, well, if we're all sanctioned, let's find it we don't need SWIFT anymore because we can have our own way of doing it. And then suddenly they don't want to negotiate. Because... But it's like a new iron curtain, isn't it? I mean it's like mm. a you know, they'll be behind the iron curtain and they'll have their own economic ecosystem basically for themselves. The difficulty here, I think, for the Iranians is simply this is that the Iranian economy is in such bad shape that you know, if they were to get into some sort of like binding relationship with China, for instance, which is, you know, one of these things, the agreement, they had a 25 year agreement, strategic economic agreement with the, the Chinese. A lot of Iranians are very concerned that that will basically turn Iran into some sort of economic colony of the Chinese, which in pure financial terms, it would. I mean, because basically, you know, for instance, one of the things in this agreement is that there'll be collaboration between Chinese and Iranian banks. But of course, Iranian banks are bankrupt. So it's not really going to be a collaboration, really. I mean, it's going to be basically a Chinese buyout. So, you know, it's not a... And, and the Iranians are aware of that. I mean, they sort of look at that and they sort of say, this is not exactly an, a partnership of equals. So I, I, I think there are domestic issues that I think we also need to be aware of, which I think could also, you know, make the, the, the relationship could probably be a little bit more difficult to forge, let's put it that way, because I don't think Iranians themselves are going to be very happy with that. And, you know, I was reminded by that Russian comment that the only people more mendacious than us are the Iranians. I mean, if that's the basis of your friendship, it's not a great basis. I mean, if basically they're saying that, you know, we love the Iranians because they're bigger liars than we are. What was the other proverb that I used to hear? A jackal of Mazandaran can only be caught cannot be caught but by a jackal of Mazandaran. Oh, really? I haven't heard that one. That's a good one. We should probably end good? on that. We should end on that, Suzanne. Yeah. Let's end on that. <laughs> That's a brilliant one. Got to understand. <laughs> Warning proverb, Ali. Thank you very much. That thank was you. magisterial. I don't, I'm not either reassured or more gloomy, actually. Because no, I because you... I mean, I think, I think it's just a continuation of the gloom, isn't it, really? So there's nothing really to be... You're right. I mean, it's 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 a muddle. It's a muddling situation, isn't it? It's a muddling situation which we must continue to monitor because I think you're right. We've reached all sorts of impasses here, but there's going to have to be some change at some point. Yeah. And maybe you know, maybe something good will happen. It's unlikely, but let's keep an open mind. So thank you very much, Ali, and thank you, thank audience. You. We'll talk next time. We're looking forward. We're doing more Russia, aren't we? I think if I'm not. We're going to. We're going to have um, Natasha Kurt from King's College London talking about Russia and China on the the far eastern border in a couple of weeks' time. It's going to be fun. Excellent. Thank you.